So church, we're in Matthew chapter 12. This is the ongoing uh, discussion that Christ is having with the Pharisees. It's very heated and very pointed. And we come to the last part of chapter 12, which may bring to summation the dialogue with the Pharisees, maybe. But he's, this is what the scripture says, and what I think is the most uh, painfully difficult part of Matthew 12. So here's the scripture. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Um, so, in this chapter 12, Christ has been battling with the Pharisees who were busy taking the five books of Moses and layering, layer, 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 layer with man-made rules so that they can stand up and say, I've checked this box and checked this box and checked this box. I am a good guy. So their motives were not necessarily bad. They wanted to be the party of purity, but when you are arrogant and self fulfilling instead of self-effacing, you just become hard to live with. And so Christ has this incredible ongoing discussion with these men who were really, they were commending themselves to one another while they simultaneously were trying to earn the favor of God. And when you do that, grace goes out the window. No need for the cross. So, so these men, he looked at them in chapter 11 and he says, Woe to you cities in, in Judah, major cities, Chorazin. Woe to you Bethsaida. Because if the works had been done in the pagan cities that had been done in you, they would have repented. And then he really added fuel to the fire. When he says this, he says, he says Woe to you um, Capernaum. Do you think you're going to be elevated to the skies? He said, but I tell you that... that if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, which is a place of total moral recklessness in the Old Testament, Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And this is just, this is an affront to these people. And then he gives this marvelous gospel invitation. He says, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, i.e. Pharisees. And you revealed them to little children, for such was your good pleasure. Then he says this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And the Pharisee says, no way. We're not weary and heavy laden. We're earning our way into the, the presence of God. We don't need a yoke from you. We teach ourselves. And so the gospel invitation fell on deaf ears. But in the context of all this, Jesus says some incredible things. He talked to these people who loved temple worship because temple worship was the way to be accepting the presence of God, as, as the Old Testament teaches. But Jesus says, you love temple worship, but I tell you that one greater than the temple walks among you. In other words, Jesus says, by my death upon the cross, I will forever fulfill the temple sacrificial system. He says, you people love the prophets as you should, but I tell you that you love Jonah, but one greater than Jonah walks among you. He says, you, you, you love history and you love 
David and his son Solomon, and as you should. He says, but I tell you that one greater than King Solomon walks among you. Boom. So Christ is saying, I am the ultimate prophet with the last word from God. I am the ultimate priest by my one sacrifice upon the cross. I will have salvation for my people, and I am the ultimate king. I rule and I reign. It's an amazing statement. And so he, he goes through this, and as the crowd hears this, they say to each other, can this be the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah? There's a buzz among the people. The crowd's getting bigger and bigger. And the Pharisees jump in and say, no, 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 no. He's doing his works of healing and casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And then Jesus launches out and he says this. He says, I'll tell you, every sin will be forgiven, man, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's the unforgivable sin. And that is a sin of, of denying the, the supremacy and the work of Jesus as Messiah and King. If you, if you go to your death with no repentance on your lips, no worship of Christ upon your lips, it's too late. And, and, and then they... They keep on talking. Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, you, you, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil ever speak what is good? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. So that it's, it's, it's ongoing. They want a sign. Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. The resurrection. And then last week we saw where a house was cleaned out of one demon, put in order, goes out, comes back, the house is in order. He brings seven of his demonic friends with him. Instead of one demon, you have eight demons filling the house. He said, what's that about? And then what Christ is saying, he's looking at the Pharisees, and he says, you can have your life morally in order, and you can do things in the right way, but you're filled with pride and arrogance and a, a, an absolute contempt for other people, and you think it's all up to you. And in that regard, you're worse off now than you were at the beginning. You're worse off as a moral, upright, uncaring, self-fulfilled person than you were as someone involved for example, in substance abuse. You go, wow. So th this, is what's, this is what's going on. But as I read this, I think about it, I, th I think of the absolute centrality of the greatness and the glory of Christ and the Trinitarian nature of God, one greater than the temple, one greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon. God is unchanging, eternal, everywhere present, all-knowing. He rules in kingly grace. He is a Abundant in goodness. To, to, to read this passage, this is a hard passage. You've got to realize that the living God is abundant in goodness. Psalm 31, verse 19 is a verse I think of frequently where the psalmist says this. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of of the children of mankind. Do you really believe that God has stored up goodness for you by virtue of the work of Jesus in your life? The one who's greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. The one who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament laws. Do you believe God is abundant in goodness? See, the centrality of the character of God has got to be in our minds all the time. When we stand up occasionally, we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. 
It's huge. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's a huge statement. To glorify God means to, to reflect back to God His character by being conformed to be like Jesus. That's it. So we say a disciple is a forgiven sinner who's constantly learning Jesus in repentance and faith. And are these things front and center in my life? The Pharisees were proud. They were unteachable. They were arrogant. And they were condemning. I was thinking about that, and I was reading some stuff this week about John Calvin, one of my favorite guys who died in 1564. And Calvin was a law student outside of Paris in his early 20s, and he came to faith in Christ. And he became one of the leaders of the Reformation, one of the great teachers in the history of the church. But he says very little about his, his conversion, except in one little two-paragraph thing. I'm going to give you parts of two paragraphs about Calvin's conversion. He says, when low, hello, when low, a very different form of doctrine started up, not one which led us away from the Christian profession, but one which brought it back to its fountain. I love that. The fountain of salvation by faith alone through the work of the cross alone. Not anything we can do. The fountain. Oh, do I see God as a fountain? Oh, I love it. To its original purity. At first, I was offended by the novelty, but I lent an unwilling ear, and at first, I confessed strenuously and passionately resisted it. To confess that I had all my life long been in ignorance and error. He was only 23, 24, 25. I at length perceived as if light had broken in upon me, and what way of error I had wallowed. And how much pollution and impurity had thereby been contracted by me. And then later, about six pages later, he says this. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. I love that statement, a teachable frame. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress. I mean, so, so Calvin all of his life said the mark of a disciple, one mark of a disciple, one mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit is having a teachable mind under the authority of the Bible, a teachable frame. In fact, he, had a, he adopted a, uh, uh, a picture of his life as hands holding a heart. And basically the statement was something like this, my heart immediately and fervently committed to Christ. So a teachable frame. And I look at this and look at the Pharisees. They had anything but a, a teachable frame. Um, and I asked, do, do, do I have a, a teachable frame? In John chapter 8 is a well-known passage. Jesus says, if you continue my words, you should know the truth. And the truth will set you free. But then the whole passage is an incredible dialogue with, with the leaders. Just a few verses. He says, uh, they, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, Jews, Old Testament, and have never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus says, No, you know, says, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son, though, remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. And then verse 39, they they said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, yes, Abraham is your father. But why do you now seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I've heard from God? And then they said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, which he was not, of course, and, and you have a demon? And Jesus says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He's the father. Then they come back with this. They said, you are, you are not yet 50 years of age, and you claim to have seen Abraham. And then Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Behold the majesty of the character of God. I am is the statement saying, I am God. So when we read these things, we also we say these are words from the lips of the living God. So here's my thesis this morning. I, as I meditated in this passage, thought about it, turned it upside down. Listen. This passage is about human flourishing. It's a hard passage. It's about having contentment and peace and joy and hope. And so as you study this passage, Christ is saying human flourishing happens when ultimate allegiance is continuously affirmed in the context of community. That's what I'm going to try to get you to see. That, that, That flourishing occurs as Ultimate allegiance to Christ is continuously affirmed in the context of community. I think that's what the passage is saying. So real quickly, I love the family. I love the family. Um, I, 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 I was raised in a wonderful family. I, the Lord has given me great joy in my family. Um, the Bible says in the fifth commandment, Children, honor your father and your mother. And then Paul says in the New Testament, honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise. The Bible underscores the primacy of the family. The Baptist Faith and Message, our confessional document, says that that the family is the primary building block of culture. God established the family, the family and the church. Um, So the the family. so, So I read this passage and I'm going, this is a difficult passage. Hordes of people, Mary and Jesus' brothers cannot get in. Tell him we want to see him. And Jesus says, stop. Who am I, who's my mother? My brother? My sister? People who do the will of God. And you're, 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 really? And then the companion passage in, in Luke 14. And you read this and you go, wow. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate, hate, his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm going, that, that's, that's hard. That's difficult. What's going on? It's incredibly, an incredible book. There's a book called The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. I'm, so it's, it's, the four loves are affection, friendship, uh, intimacy, sexual, physical intimacy, and the love 
of Christ, agape love. And Lewis's thesis, and I think he's right, is that if, if the reality of Christ doesn't water the natural loves, they cannot flourish. Affection, friendship, sexual intimacy, physical intimacy. So, so what Lewis says in his thesis is that, is that the love of Christ weeds and feeds and protects and nourishes these loves. I think that's what Christ is saying here. If, if you really want to be a good son, brother, husband, friend, make Christ supreme. That, that This is a passage on human flourishing or blooming or growth or hope. Let me just read a little statement from the four loves. It's in the worship guide. The natural loves are not self-sufficient. Something else at first vaguely described as decency and common sense, but later revealed as goodness, and finally as the whole Christian life in one particular relation must come to the help of the mere feeling if the feeling is to be kept sweet. That, that's worth memorizing, that little sentence. They must come to the help of feeling if the feeling is to be kept sweet. To say this is not to belittle the natural loves, once again, affection, friendship, human intimacy, but to indicate where their real glory lies. It's no disparagement to a garden to say that it will not fence and feed itself nor prune its own fruit trees. A garden is a good thing, but that is not the sort of goodness it has. It will remain a garden as a thing from the wilderness, only if someone does all these things to it. And the reality of Christ does that. So please hear me. Something has to come in to shore up our lives because mere feelings will not be kept sweet unless they're nourished by Christ. I believe that. So there are people here today in this worship sanctuary worship center who are dating, some people that just got married, people contemplating getting married. And you think that you're going to go through life on this ecstasy of sweetness and joy and laughter, and you know what? You will not. You just won't. I mean, you just, you just, you won't. So to keep the feelings strong, you just won't. I'm telling you, so just don't, don't be embarrassed about it. You just won't. So to keep, the, to keep it going strong, you worship Jesus. I believe that. Uh, there's some people here just who are pregnant. Saw some in the hallway, women in the hallway pregnant. And uh, there, there are people here that are going to have babies. And so they're really excited about having a baby. And, and, and some, some people just had a newborn baby. And so the baby is still uh, being fed from the mom. And even now, the, the, the diapers aren't that bad. Really, di diapers of, of, of little, little babies, before they get real food, they're not bad. You can put up with it. But a day is coming when this little angelic being that you're holding, you're thinking, wow, what's going on with this child? Maybe we got the wrong baby at the hospital. Something's going on here. What's going on? And so, so for, the, for the feeling of joy to continue, this, this love has to be superintended and nourished. And I believe that. So, so this is a passage about human flourishing. Um, 
So something has happened to me in my older years. I have come to the point in just the last year or so of liking country music. I don't know what's happened to me. Uh, um, I'm afraid NASCAR is next. And the nadir of my life will be if I start watching golf on TV. If that happens, it's all over. But anyway, I was listening to a song recently by Kenny Chesney. It's, it's entitled, There Goes My Life. It's so good. You got, you got to love a guy who quotes Augustine and Kenny Chesney in the same service. You know, it shows a profound simplicity of life. But uh, he says this. Last service, I, I cried when I read this. Hopefully I won't in this service. To cry over country music is really a sad thing. Chesney says this. He's told that his, he doesn't say, girlfriend or, or young wife is pregnant. He says, all I could think about was that I'm too young for this. Got my whole life ahead. Heck, I'm just a kid myself. How am I going to raise one? All I could see were his dreams. All I could see were his dreams going up in smoke so much for ditching this town and hanging out on the coast. Oh, well, those plans are long gone. There goes my life. There goes my future, my everything. Might as well kiss it all goodbye. There goes my life. A couple of years of up all night and a few thousand diapers later, that mistake he thought he made covers up the refrigerator. Oh, yeah, he loves that little girl. Mama's waiting to tuck her in as she stumbles up those stairs. She smiles back at him, dragging that teddy bear. Sleep tight, blue eyes and bouncing curls. He smiles. There goes my life. There goes my future, my everything. I love you, Daddy, good night. There goes my life. She had that Honda loaded down with Abercrombie clothes and 15 pairs of shoes and his American Express. Bad idea, by the way. Don't send your daughter to off with the American Express. Give her an allowance. You're going to be shocked if you do. Just, that's an editorial comment. He checked the oil and slammed the hood and said, you're good to go. And she hugged them both and headed off to the West Coast. Another bad idea, but that's beside the point. He cried, there goes my life. There goes my future, my everything. I love you, baby, goodbye. There's not a dad here who wouldn't sing that song. Not a dad here. There goes my life. There are some of us who were not expecting to get pregnant when we did. And we could say, there goes my life. But a few years later, we could say with great joy, there goes my life. And there's something God puts in your heart. In fact, Malachi says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. So if you know, am I filled with the Holy Spirit? My question is, do you love your kids? That's one mark of the Holy Spirit. So, so, so I say that, but at the same time, the way we can flourish as moms and dads and friends is to constantly underscore our primary allegiance to Jesus Christ. And to say that time after time after time so that when a decision comes that's difficult, they will not be shocked. Example, this girl comes back from the West Coast and she brings her boyfriend with her. 
And she says, I want you to meet my boyfriend. And we're going to spend the night upstairs tonight in the room where I was raised. And the dad stands up and says, I love you, but that's the room where I went in night after night when I woke up in the middle of the night and I stood over you and I prayed that the living God in the name of Jesus would bless your life. And I read the Bible over, your, over you in that room. And you're asking me to turn that room of worship into a place of sexual immorality. It is not going to happen. And she will not be shocked. So there's a red roof inn down the way. You can go there if you want to. But give me back my American Express because I'm not paying for it. See, when we had these conversations, dads, when they're four and five and six and eight and 12, they will not be shocked when we stand up and say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You've made it a thousand times clear by your, by your actions and your standards and your statements and your life. That's what this passage is saying, that, that, that our allegiance must be to Christ. So very quickly, just in principles, number one, as we come to the living God and as we look at this passage, Jesus calling us to heart obedience. I love this statement. When you think about the, the character of God, in God there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteous that desires to give. John chapter 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Colossians chapter 1, the beautiful prayer that regarding the glory of Christ, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The most important thing we can do for each other, or for our contemporaries, or for people who don't know Christ, as we seek to, seek to share the gospel with them, is to make Christ preeminent in their lives. Number two, the way to express human flourishing is through joyful obedience, which unquestionably underscores the supremacy of the Lordship of Christ. Human flourishing, the goodness and majesty of Christ. Augustine died in 430. He said this. One person I respect very much, a church historian, says that, that this sentence, the last part of this sentence, may be the most profound thing uttered in, this, in human history outside of Scripture. And this is what Augustine said. The part that everybody quotes is, uh, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. But I, th I think the beginning clause is, is you, you always, you, excuse me, you awake us to delight in your praise. Okay. Delight, we, we delight in who you are. That you're an overflowing fountain of good. You, you wake us to delight in your praise for you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And I, I say to you this morning that, that if you've never run to the cross and never seen the glory of Christ, there's a restlessness. We believe the Bible teaches, and Isaiah as well, in Romans 3. There's a restlessness that will be restless in your spirit until you come to know Christ. And you experience the human flourishing that comes 
as you commit your way to the Lord. But you, 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 you awake us to delight in your praise. And, and then in the same book called The Confessions, Augustine talks about, about coming to faith in Christ. It's a wonderful story. But he, just, he, says, he says this. It's in the worship of God. How free, how, excuse me, how sweet at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys. I love that statement. Which I had once feared to lose, especially his sexual uh, roaming around. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You are sweeter than all pleasure, though not of flesh and blood, and you who outshine all light. So what he's saying is that he talks about fruitless joys. I was involved in pursuing things, and there was a pleasure in them for a moment, but in the long run there is nothing but a fruitless state of unfulfillment. That's why, that's why I love Hebrews who says the, the, the passing pleasures of sin. Sin has a certain pleasure, yeah, but, but it's, it's passing. It doesn't last. And obviously he says you, 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 you took away those, those fruitless joys and you filled it with a sovereign joy, a glorious joy. And I'm, do, you, do you experience that as you contemplate the greatness of Christ? And thirdly, I'm involved in this passage as I understand that my heart is always an idol-making factory. Therefore, I've got to continually run back to the cross and continually affirm the reality of Christ and continually seek first the kingdom of God. But I want you to see this. My time is almost gone. But I want to hit this. This passage is spoken to people in the context of community. C community. Allegiance to Christ, flourishing allegiance to Christ in the context of community. Now, please hear me. Some books, a book called Bowling Alone, written 20 years ago by a guy named Robert Putnam, I think he's from Harvard. Yeah, he's from Harvard. About the death of community in America 20 years ago. And a more recent book is a book called The Life, excuse me, The Death and Life of Great American Cities by a man named Jacobs. And what they're saying is that, is that community in, in America uh, is not what it used to be. I read a book recently that told this story. There's a couple that moved to Southern California, an affluent part of Southern California, an affluent neighborhood from Tel Aviv, Israel. They were Israelis. Had a four-year-old son. Two weeks into that location, and they moved in. They've seen neighbors. I've already met many neighbors. Uh, the husband goes on a business trip overnight. The wife heads to bed at 10 o'clock and just checks in on her four-year-old son. His bed is empty. And she starts running through the house calling his name. There's no response. And she, like any parent, is absolutely unhinged. And so she goes out into the starry night. It's 10 o'clock at night. She says the neighbor's lights are on. And she starts screaming his name as only a mother could who thinks her child has been snatched or abducted. And she screams and she screams. And finally she goes back into the house and there's no response. She didn't have her cell phone to call 911. And as she runs in the house, she looks at the couch, and the cushions are askew, and her four-year-old son has kind of made a fort, and is sleeping under the cushions. And, of course, she breathes a sigh of relief. The next day, she's out 
walking with her son, and several of her neighbors who were taking the garbage out or rolled down their windows or leaving says, oh, we heard your cries last night. Is everything okay? And she said, yes, thank you. And she told her husband, she said, and a friend, she said, um, if this had happened in Tel Aviv, there would have been 30 families combing the neighborhood, screaming my son's name at the top of their voice. But no one came out. And her friend, who was an American, said, welcome to Southern California. Not just Southern California. I would just say we have to push back against hyper-individualism, which leads to isolation. So three comments, two from this passage. Number one, Jesus calls us to community. In this passage, God is an eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He made us for relationship. Great book. Somebody asked me, what's a good book you've read? The Second Mountain by David Brooks. I just could not recommend it more highly. Brooks is a guy who was an Orthodox Jew who became a non-practicing Jew, and I think now he's become a believer, an incredibly good writer, good thinker. But this is what he says on page 302 in that book. He says, the heart is that place of us that longs for fusion or joining with others. We are not primarily thinking creatures. We are defined by what we desire. We become what we love. The core question for each of us is, have we educated our emotions to love the right things in the right way? And I would just say God has called us to, to relationship. That's, a, that's where you begin. And secondly, throughout the New Testament, God calls us to relationship by underscoring a common story. Edmund Burke, one of my favorite guys in the 18th century, says, it, says that the people who have never looked backward to their ancestors will not be able to look forward and plan for the future. People who look backward to see the heroism and the struggle that came before see themselves as debtors who owe something to other people. So, so this week is the 4th of July. I'm so thankful for our country. Uh, it's a great concern to me that we're living in a culture that I fear is becoming ahistorical. We don't understand the story. You see, stories bring people together, a common story. This is weird. I admit it's weird. Five years ago, uh, we were, had been on a missions trip, so we were out of the country on the 4th of July. I woke up that day, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, today, my name is George, and your name is Martha. So every time you refer to me, you've got to say George. And if you don't, I won't respond to you. George Washington, Martha Washington. And so every time you call me, we're going to stop, and I'm going to give you a fact about one of my heroes, George Washington. And so she says, you're weird. I said, I know, but let's just do it. Just, just humor me. And so that she says to me, George, George Washington, born in Virginia. His mom and dad died when he was young. George Washington went to Barbados and contracted smallpox as a, as a teenager, and which probably saved his life later on, but made, meant that he could never father children. George Washington, land surveyor, French and Indian War. In one battle, listen, one battle, two horses were shot out from underneath him and three bullet holes in his coat. A man of incredible integrity who had to be really called off the farm to lead the Continental Army, who had to be called off the farm to be the first commander-in-chief of our nation. George Washington married a wealthy woman named Martha Dandridge and raised her two children as his own. 
George Washington who worshiped Christ. He did. I love George Washington. But see, that, that, that's a common story. The common story we hold is behold the glory of Jesus. Behold the wonder of the cross. Behold the forgiveness of sins. Behold the fact that, that, that we are, as, as, as broken people, part of a great story. That God forgives fallen people who struggle. I, I, I always think about 1 Corinthians 6. When I think about community, I think about the, the really messed up church at Corinth. Don't, don't ever, if you ever say Corinthians, this was a messed up church. They had more problems than you could ever begin to realize. And yet, in the midst of all that, Paul, Paul talks about how to treat other people and how to walk with dignity with each other. And he says this in chapter 6, verse 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you have been washed and you have been sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you, if you back up and say, man, where, where, where can I see people that formerly were adulterers or offenders in other sexuality areas or, or maybe drunkards or thieves or swindlers or, 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 or revilers, where can I see them? Come to East Cooper every Sunday morning you'll see them. But they've been washed. They've been cleansed. You see See, to, to me, if you have a common story of the cross, it opens the door for a relationship that says, you know, I desperately need the touch of Christ. I do not have it together. I, I do not have it together. Period. And I, I, I just want to say to those of you who are, who are struggling, you're surrounded by strugglers. I want to say to you who are hurting because a child is breaking your heart. You're surrounded by people who've had children who've broken their hearts. People who deal with infertility. People all around you. People who are just lonely, battered, beaten down. We're here. It's a common story. See, this accoutrement flows from the common story. The other thing I want to say very quickly, my time is gone, is... We live in a time of, of, of hyper-individuality versus relationship. It's interesting. I try to read these books, and every book says, not every book, a lot of books say that if you want to escape the pull-down of hyper-individuality, then get involved in something that is greater than yourself. Well, that's, that's what we're about. It's called the Great Commission. It's called loving the future generations. It's called about talk, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's, it's all about doing something that is glorious. So I say, fight against hyper-individuality. Fight it. Push against it by worshiping Christ. There's an article, and I'll just mention this in passing, article in the Wall Street Journal this week on the Tuesday edition an editorial that talked about sociological research that will be discussed for weeks and months to come. It was a startling article. 
It says two demographic studies, the man who wrote the article said it has caused him incredible upset. He says, first study is that the average church attendance in America has gone from, on a weekly basis, from 41% of Americans 21 years, 20 years ago to today, uh, 41 to 29%, which is a land shift, demographic land shift. And the other study that is breathtaking is that we're approaching the place where we are not replacing our population. People aren't having babies. You have to have 2.1 children per married couple to replace the population. And people aren't having babies. That's been true in Europe for three or four decades. Russia is just abysmal. They're at that 0.5. I don't know who's going to do anything in Russia in 50 years. Italy, France, everybody way below 2.1. And he said, these things should cause us to lay awake at night. And so I read that, and I thought two things. Go to church and have babies. Okay, that's easy. But, but I also read that and said, this is a statement of hyper-individuality. I, I don't need the body of Christ. I'm fine. It's messy. Yeah, it's messy. And number two, I don't need a child because the surveys I read and the studies I, that tell me that if you have a child that's born in the year 2019, by the time that child is 23, that child will have cost you $15 million. It will cost you. And it's just not worth the sleepless nights, and it's not worth this, it's not worth that. I mean, go home and call your mom and dad or look to them right now and say, thank you for having children. I'll say this, it is a God-given responsibility to be fruitful and multiply. If, you, if you're married and you're not having children, pray about it. I think you're wrong. Biblically speaking, I think you're wrong. So, so, so the, but, but these, this survey fits into the hyper-individuality. So, so, church, listen. If you want to flourish, as you read Matthew 12, if you want to flourish, it's constantly affirming your allegiance to Jesus in the context of community. Thank you for being the body of Christ.